And Mal, thank you also for coming today. You have a couple of questions for Tom. Please go ahead. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, Tom. Uh, well, I have this, this question for you, Tom. Um, could you talk about other sentient beings in uh, MPMR? In general, are they less egoistic than us in PMR? Or are some of them and and are some of them willing to help us with PMR issues, or are some of them involved in maintaining our PMR uh, rule set running? Well, different questions, but mainly if if they are less egoistic, and if they are willing to help us in PMR things. And the other question is just if they uh, if they are involved in maintaining the 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 PMR rules it running. Okay, mostly the last question is no. They're not generally involved in keeping the PMR running. Um, the bigger picture look at, at this is that when you are interacting, let's say in an out of body state or just in a meditative state, you're interacting with the larger conscious system. So you want to communicate with some other being out there. So if you have this desire, the system will often communicate with you. Okay. It's not necessarily that there's just non-physical beings wandering around that just happen to get your message and, and come in. Usually it's connection to the system, but that connection will be in a personal way. It's not like uh, you'll get a message to say, okay, you've just logged onto the system. What would you like to know? You don't get that sort of a thing. You get a, you just suddenly feel the presence of something. And we interpret anything that will communicate with us. We interpret it as a being. And we generally um, give it the kind of humanoid features. You know, if we get a visual of it at all, that's kind of humanoid because that's the way we interpret beings to be. That's that's our that's our metaphor, if you will, for a, for a being is somebody that looks a little like us, has a head and shoulders and torso and, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> so that tends to be what we see. And if the system talks to you or communicates to you, you will interpret that as a being. And you can ask that being things like, well, what's your name? And often there'll be a long pause because it doesn't have a name, really. It's just a being there that's going to talk to you. But if you insist, it'll make something up and tell you. <laughs> and if because it's your habit, you know, that when you meet people, you say, well, you know, what sort of work do you do? And where did you go to school? And, uh, you know, this sort of thing. How many grandchildren do you have? You know, these are just the things you tell people or you ask questions to get a, a feeling for the person and who they are and what they are and, and uh, you know, what they do and the kind of the intellectual level they're on and what they're interested in. You tend to do that and you tend to do the same things when you're non-physical. So you tend to ask these questions. You'll get something back that suits you. If the system really wants to open up a conversation, if the system doesn't, then you'll get something back probably that doesn't suit you. Um, in any case, it's always good to have this sense that you only want to communicate in, in those instances and with those beings that 
have a greater, I have a lower quality, I have a, a lower uh, entropy than you do. I have a greater quality of consciousness than yourself. Make something like that. So you only want to talk to beings who have an equal to or greater quality of consciousness than yourself, or maybe a greater than yourself. And the reason is that that gets rid of some of your fears. People who are out of, in other reality frames talking to people, that is making a connection where something, they get information back, and it could be they're getting it out of the, of the database. Well, they'll turn that into a being too, because it's communication. Anytime we get a communication, we have a metaphor for that, something that communicates with us. It's a being. So we tend to get make beings out of all sorts of things that will communicate with us. Okay, so if you have this idea that there may be a scary being out there or one who would tamper with you or one who would uh, abuse you or, or do things, play tricks on you or would tell you misinformation on purpose, if you have any sense of there being something negative out there, then one of the ways that you allay that fear is to have a constraint that says, I only want to talk to people that are equal to or greater than my quality of consciousness and that uh, will have my best interest at heart. In other words, they want to help me, not want to use me, but want to help me. So if you have that intent, now those are called affirmations. And the purpose of an affirmation is basically to get rid of your own fear, or at least hold your own fear at bay if you don't get rid of it. So it's always good to be more specific. The people who tend to get in trouble are people who are over-enthusiastic intellectually, but not quite so well-developed yet at the being level. They still have a fair amount of fear, but intellectually, they feel like, wow, I like this growth thing. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get rid of my fear. I'm going to get rid of my ego. I'm going to be happy. This is fantastic. All right, system, you know, sock it to me. I'm ready, you know. I'm open. Just come in and help me out here. I want to go. And they just say that. And then afterwards, they say, maybe that wasn't too smart, just inviting anybody in. Maybe... You know, what if I get some mean guy that takes advantage of me or tricks or lies to me? And then that fear starts to play on them. And as that fear comes up in their mind, every time they think about it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, oh no, they're, they've been, you know, taken over by some evil entity. Well, that's just their fear of having something negative going round and round, getting bigger every time they think about it, they build themselves, they, they get themselves into a point where now they've got some negative being attached to them doing bad things, making their skin crawl, making their muscles hurt, uh, jabbing them with a sharp stick. They can feel the point of the stick being jabbed in their back or something. And they have all these symptoms they can't sleep because this being keeps them awake and talks to them incessantly and tells them to do awful things and on and on and on. Your imagination, you know, is, is the limit. And most of that is people who kind of recklessly opened up, then became fearful that they did so. And then the fear begins to build and build and build and build to where it has physical manifestations. And indeed, they have created a negative entity, thought form, 
that they're now struggling with. And that thought form has, it seems to have its own agenda and its own thought. So it becomes like there is a being, there is some negative being that's messing with me all the time, but it's a being of your own creation. But it has its own life, just like your dreams can take on their own life, you know, when you're dreaming them. Well, your fear is a constant thing. It's inside of you and you can create, you can create this being, if you will, as a thought form. That's just a way of saying that you become obsessed with the negative side of your experience and it keeps growing. So that's just a little advice on going out and meeting people. It'll help allay your fear if you start with an affirmation that's very positive, that limits your connection to those who would want to help you and those who are a higher quality than you and who would interact with you with your best interest. Because if they're higher quality than you, then they're going to want to help you, not use you. So then you can relax and say, all right, that's my criteria. That's my intent. And that intent works as a filter and I'll be fine. So that's a, that's a, a thing that you should, that you should do. So now what are these beings? Many times they are either a direct link to the larger consciousness system or the system puts you in a, in like a virtual reality where they exist. Whatever you experience out there is a data stream. Remember that you talk to somebody out there, you're going to interact with something. That's a data stream you're being sent. And then you have to ask the question sent by who sent why? Okay. Well, who would be sending you this data stream? Now it could be an individual IUOC that sends you a data stream from their mind to your mind. We can create data streams. We can send them right with our intent. We can make things up and we can send them to people. And think about people. Our intention can move data. So it could be an IOUC that's sending you this data, or it could be the system. And if it's a whole playground full of things, whole bunches of people and whatever, it's probably you're in a virtual reality. Well, if you're in a virtual reality, perhaps you just are taking on a body inside this virtual reality and all of these other virtual characters and you're interacting with them. So that would be if there's multiplayers. Because anybody experiences anything, it's a virtual reality. Experience requires rules. Experience requires context. And anything that has rules and context is a virtual reality, but it doesn't have to be a virtual reality like ours. It can be a virtual reality like the dream reality or like you know, the transition reality, or it can have a very loose rule set. So it can be a dream reality where the, the way this game works is that you retrieve lost souls. That's another virtual reality that you can get into. It's a virtual reality game, just like logging onto the Sims instead of World of Warcraft. You can log onto the retrieve lost, lost souls virtual reality game. You can go play that game. It's a good game. You can learn a lot of good things from it. But in any case, think of it as a data stream. You're getting a data stream from something. Either it's from a server in a game, in some other virtual world, if you will, or it's just a connection to the larger consciousness system. And if it's the larger consciousness system, it will tell you things that can help you for the most part. If it's a virtual reality game, well, you're just in the game, you know, whatever that game is. 
it's not necessarily trying to help you do anything. You're just in the game and got to deal with whatever it is you have to deal with, whether it's monsters with swords or whether it's, you know, nice fuzzy creatures that are, that are fun to be with. You just have to interact with it, however it is. And that's more dreamlike, except you're awake. You're not sleeping. You're in a, say, an out-of-body state. So that's the way it is with, with uh, interacting. Everything you interact with out there is not another IOUC. Could be. There's, there's three sources of data. You know, you say, well, data stream, where does it come from? Who would be sending me a data stream? Only three sources of data. One of them is the IUOC, which then is also the computer. And, you know, if it's a virtual reality, I just include that as the IUOC. It's a server somewhere in consciousness. Okay. Or it's another IUOC who is with their intent sending you information, or it comes from yourself because you're not, you can create information. Those are the three sources. And there's no tags on any of those sources. We never know which one it is. And for the most part, it doesn't matter because you're in a virtual reality. The thing, what matters is where are you, what are your choices? And am I making good choices? So if you're in a virtual reality that has big furry monsters that are very negative and they want to fight with you, well, what are your choices? If you're in a nice reality, you're having a nice intellectual conversation about the nature of reality with someone, what are your choices? Choices are to maybe try to see whether what they're telling you is something that's useful to you, that makes sense to you, or whether it doesn't make sense to you. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, you know, the, the other beings and other realities thing is, a is, uh, something that is, has a lot of uncertainty in it. Affirmations will set you off to a positive, positive experience. Keep it positive. Um, always be, um, always be, uh, have, have, uh, skepticism about what you get. And about the source, because you never know what the source is. So always be skeptical. Uh, if it makes sense to you and it's something you can use, well, use it. If you can test it, test it. Otherwise, keep it in the basket of unknown things that may or may not be interesting. I'll revisit them later if I get more information. Or if you think that it's just not useful, then throw it away. So you have to be the, the judge of how valuable it is. And sometimes you'll have to interact with a, with a source dozens of times before you can make a good judgment of how useful it is. So act just like you would if you met somebody walking in the street. You know, if you're sitting at a bus stop waiting for a bus and somebody comes up and sits down next to you and has, starts to get up a conversation, kind of start it the same way. You know, you get to know them, find out what they know and maybe what they don't know by asking questions and so on and uh, always stay skeptical but see what you can learn sometimes you can learn some wonderful stuff it can be very informative you can learn a lot in these situations particularly if you're talking to the lcs because the lcs will tell you just what you need to know to take the next step and it's very helpful but you okay. can't count that that's who you're talking to you don't know that for sure so be careful and always be, um, uh, you know, uncertain and a little suspicious and a little wary that you have to come to your own choices. Don't just do something because they tell you.
or believe okay. something because they tell you. Okay, okay, Tom. And um, the fact that um, you you don't feel uh, so so physical, or or you don't you don't experience uh, physical sensations as we do here. Uh, does it make that space uh, less less dense, let's say, or no. less egoistic? No, the reason you don't feel often that you don't feel things to be as physical is because that's not as important. When you get a data stream, the computer isn't going to send you a lot of data that you don't need. In other words, here we have a rule set. So the computer that sends us a data stream when we're in this reality has to send everything that the rule set supports. So we sit here and I get everything, you know, everything that's in this room, you know, is available to me. I go outside, I can see the clouds and the sky and the green grass and the bushes and the other people. And I get everything. All I have to do is look at it. There it is. When you are in an out of body state, if what you're doing is mainly talking, having conversation, well, there's just no reason for the computer to be sending you pictures of green grass and people walking by on the sidewalk and, you know, cars drifting by. I mean, all of that would just be useless distraction. So you only get what you need to have the conversation. But if you're out of body and what you're doing is not having a conversation, you're exploring the map. Well, now you will find that there can be a lot of detail if you're in some virtual reality game where there's a map. So you've gotten into some virtual reality and now you can zoom in and that can be even more physical than here. Colors are brighter. You can see more detail. It seems to be perfectly physical everywhere you look, you see? So now you have enriched physical detail. And when you come back here, this seems kind of plain and drab by comparison. Or if you're just having a conversation, there's nothing more than whatever's needed to support the conversation. You don't need bushes in the background and landscaping to support the conversation. So that's why in most of your out of bodies, you don't have a lot of physical stuff other than just what you're doing. So if you go into a place and let's say into a building or something, and you look at one part of it, that will seem kind of physical and you can interact there, but it doesn't mean that you have a whole stage of props that, that uh, are in your vision. Computer is, is, uh, what they call uh, parsimonious. It only sends you the data that you need in order for you to do what it is you're doing. So you're in a virtual reality, you get whatever data is coming to define that virtual reality by the, its rule set. But if you're just in an out of body, you only get the data you need to define just what you're doing and uh, no more. Mostly what you're doing isn't looking at stuff, mostly you're getting information and connecting to people and getting ideas. So then you don't need a whole lot of physical stuff. So it's just kind of you. And if you don't really need the person you're talking to, to seem physical, then you don't necessarily even see a humanoid shape in a robe talking to you. You just get the information telepathically because you don't really need a body. The body only makes you feel more comfortable because you're used to talking to things with bodies that look like they're humanoid. But if you get past that point, then you just get the telepathic communication and you don't bother with the body because it's unnecessary. 
Okay, Tom, and the, this um, sensation of, of, let's say, uh, deep, deep trust, something that you are aware of while, while you're there, and maybe you, you have the intent to receive some guidance, mm -hmm. and then um, it's difficult to, to separate from a belief, but let's say that, that you know it's not a belief, it's just a deep sense of trust and yes. you're sure that this is what I am receiving and this is what I asked for. And I know mm -hmm. it comes from something bigger than me. Right. That's and also a sensation. You have that trust and that's good. I would put that pretty high up on my, uh, you know, when I, when I take it back and, and I'm skeptical about it, you may put it right up there at a 0.99, you know, credible source, maybe a 0.9999 credible source, but very few things should you put at a one. You can always be tricked, you know, put them at a, or you can always interpret things in a way that they not, that they aren't. But yes, I do that too. You know, when, when, when you interact with a larger conscious system and you feel this love and you feel, you know, there's a total trust there, you're totally open and you're it and it's, and you trust it. Well, do trust that that's real. If it was something bogus, you wouldn't feel that unlikely you would feel it. I've never felt the strong sense of caring and trust and whatever and found it out that that wasn't the way it was. Mm -hmm. But I still won't put it at a one. I'll still put it at a 999 because I, I haven't necessarily experienced everything that can be experienced. Mm -hmm. So yes, when you feel that sort of connection, that's a good, that's a good feeling that you, you really know your source in a sense, you know, it's quality. But again, you still have to make choices. Even if that quality choice tells you things, don't believe it. Just you got some data and you'll see if your experience doesn't support it. If it doesn't, let it go. So you can't believe things. You still have to take responsibility for all your choices. And if a system finds you doing that, that you're believing everything it tells you, the way it typically takes care of that is by giving you misinformation that causes you a problem. What that is, it's a, just a little slap on the wrist that you need to make your own decisions. You can't just follow everything I say. You have to think about what I say. You have to, you know, process it and think about it, but you have, it has to fit your experience in your own life. Otherwise just hold it off to the side as something interesting, but I don't have any experience yet to make a good judgment of it. So just kind of hold that off to the side. People get into trouble sometimes. They'll, they'll run into an entity and the entity will seem to be very good and they learn a lot and almost everything they get is right. And pretty soon they aren't making their free will choices anymore. They're just doing what they're told. That's when the system will pass you some information that, that will get you in trouble. Just as a thing to say, don't just be a slave to what you hear here. You have to make the choices. You can't use me as your choice maker. So, yes, you can have a lot of confidence in what you get, but you still have to make your own choices. Apply it when you can. And, you know, sometimes you can't apply it right away. Sometimes it's like, well, that's really interesting, but I don't know how to apply that because it's just not in my experience. Then set it off to the side. Maybe someday it will be in your experience, or maybe it never will be, but that's okay. It's something that you've got. I mean, I get, I've gotten all things, sorts of things that even like 20 years later, 
a bell goes off and it's, oh, that's what that meant. Okay. (laughs) I got that now, but you know, it's been like 20 years ago, you know, that I got something and it didn't really compute until now. So don't, don't run your life except by your own experience, but keep things that you trust off on the side in case one day it becomes your experience. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. That was very enlightening. And uh, I have another question. This is more like um, uh, intellectual uh, question. Is that uh, we know that uh, in, in my big toe, uh, in MBT, uh, there's a lot of uh, metaphors. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's understandable. Now, uh, there are some key things that uh, I want to ask you if they are still metaphors or they have some uh, fundamental, um, if they are fundamental more than than metaphors, like for example. uh, Okay, but when we do that, also one of the answers is both. They can be metaphors and have some real fundamental meaning. It's just that we don't know, but go ahead and do them. We'll we'll do them one at a time as as you get to them. But both is also, uh, a valid answer, not just necessarily one or the other. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, for example, some some very basic things like uh, the fact that the larger consciousness system is finite, and that it is a discrete computational system. I mean, yes. it's not an analog an analog no, system. I'd, I'd say that that is. You know, whenever we describe something that is beyond our direct experience. You might say we're, we kind of, we have to have metaphors. That, that's what metaphors are. You know, you can't actually ever get a direct experience of the larger system. All you can ever get is data from the larger system. So you can't ever really get the system or touch the system itself. You can only touch the information from the system. And that's the same with you and I. You can only get information that I give you. You can't really get inside Tom Campbell. You can only get what Tom Campbell says or does or how he acts or his gestures, but you have to get it through data and interpret it. You can't somehow get inside and get it in any more direct way other than just getting the data. So that's true of anything. That's how we we interact is with data. So you're never really going to see that larger consciousness system. Only you're going to see is data from it. Okay. So now things like the fact that it is uh, digital and discrete, that just comes from the idea that discrete and digital systems are very flexible systems. They can do anything. They can approximate anything. Whereas the analog systems, remember the old analog computers with uh, wheels and gears and cams and things like that, they can only do very specific things. You can build one of those to multiply or do differential equations or do something, but they're not very adjustable. They just do that thing because they're made out of, you know, because it's analog, it's not a flexible system. So when I say it's a digital system, that's because everything is digital it seems you know if you look at if you look at space 
space comes down into Planck length chunks, time down into Planck time chunks. Uh, if you look at uh, your site, what you see, it comes in chunks of photons or acoustic waves. You know, it comes, it comes in little chunks of pressure. So everything can be reduced to, to pieces. And everything that we've measured, you look at mass, you know, you look at my arm here and my arm reduces down to molecules and then it reduces down to atoms in the molecules and then it reduces down to nuclei uh, like protons and neutrons and other kind of ons that are, you know, make up those pieces. And those pieces are made up of other pieces, but everything's made up of piece parts. It's all discrete pieces. So everything we know in our reality and everything we can imagine seems to break down into smaller and smaller pieces until we get to the resolution of the system. And once you get down to a pixel, you can't break that down anymore. You're stuck there at that, at that pixel level. So to say that it's a digital information system is just a very general concept that that is the way that a virtual reality can be computed it can't be computed in an analog system. It has to be a digital system because that's the only thing flexible enough to do it. All right. Now that's using my, my understanding of information and how information can be used. Well, I don't necessarily understand everything there is in the universe or in the, you know, in, in the larger kinds of system to understand. So I would still call that a metaphor but a very good metaphor, you know, it's a metaphor that, that seems to have um, sticking power, you know, it, it, because there's, you know, you look at all the possibilities, you can only look at the ones you know of, the ones you're ignorant of, you can't look at those possibilities. So you don't know for sure about anything, basically. But I feel very strongly that when we say it's a digital information system, that that is a strong metaphor. You know, it's uh, likely to be a very strong metaphor. That it's finite is a likely very strong metaphor. And that's because nothing real can be infinite. Infinity is a concept, not a place, not a thing. You know, you can't be infinite. You talk of infinite numbers. You can't ever get to infinity because if you ever got there, you could always multiply it by two or add one to it. And then it wouldn't be infinity anymore. And then whatever that is with multiplied by two or add one to it, you could add another one to that and multiply it by two again. You see, there's, there's no end to it. It's just a concept. And in mathematics, mm -hmm. nobody ever gets to infinity. You only get asymptotic to infinity. You only can approach infinity. So infinity is a conceptual place, not a real place. It doesn't actually exist. Anything real has to be finite. So this larger consciousness system is a real system. Consciousness is real and it needs to be finite. So that I think is also a strong metaphor, but I'd say, yeah, they're all metaphors, but some metaphors are stronger than others. So let's get down to one where I talk about a, an individuated unit of consciousness. Okay. Now that draws on the, basically the model of consciousness. You have to model consciousness. I model it by function. I look at all the different functions that consciousness has to have, has to exhibit. And one of those functions is that there's a lot of chunks of consciousness that interact with each other. Okay? And these, these chunks of consciousness have a mission, and that is to evolve. 
because you either evolve or de-evolve. If you de-evolve enough, you disappear. So if you want to, you know, to be around for a while, if you want to survive or live, you evolve. So I see that we have a system that has to evolve. Evolving requires learning. Learning requires things to happen in a sequence. They have to happen serially. You can't just learn everything in an instant. You have to learn something before you can learn the next thing, before you're smart enough to learn the next thing. So it has to be cumulative. Well, if it's cumulative and we learn by experience, then our experience has to be cumulative or we have to learn everything in one experience. Well, we know we don't learn much in one experience as far as growing up goes. So you have to have cumulative experiences. So you see, it's just a logical thing. And an IUOC then becomes that function of consciousness that inter that's interactive with other IUOCs and that accumulates learning. Well, that's its function. So call that an IUOC. Then you have the free will awareness unit, which has a little different function. And that's to serve as the, as the, the choice maker for an avatar. Okay, it's a different function. So I've got then an IUOC. You could just have one thing. I could just say, well, I've got an IUOC and it does all those things. It, it you know, looks at the, at the uh, it, it manipulates or makes choices for the IUOC and it accumulates and it does all these other things. But it, when you do that, it's less, it's more confusing because it's more complex. It's easier to break it down into all of the basic functions in consciousness all have a name and a thing that you can call them so that you can have a conversation about that function. That way it enables us to really talk about it and know what we're saying. It makes it more specific. So that's why I say these things are metaphors. So even the larger consciousness system itself is a metaphor in the sense that it is a, it is a word, it is a phrase, larger conscious system that I use to represent the whole of consciousness, our whole consciousness system. Well, if every time I said that, I had to say our whole consciousness system, that would take more words. It's easier just to give it a name and call it a larger conscious system and then call it a, you know, an LCS. So all metaphors, basically. Things have to be metaphors. That's our language. Our language is all, a metaphor is just a symbol. Is a symbol for something. So they're all symbols. And we can't actually communicate except with symbols. Because all we can ever do is pass data to each other. And those data has to be symbols that we can interpret. You see? So we're stuck with we're stuck with that. Whether we're talking to each other or whether we're, you know, whatever we're doing, it all ends up being language, symbols. So I want to talk about this larger conscious system and explain it to people. So I have to turn it into a series of metaphors that allow me to do that in the cleanest way possible. So that's why I come up with a metaphor like a, a, um, an experience packet. Instead of saying it's an incarnation, I use experience packet because that's a fresh idea that people all over can look at. And if I say reincarnation, that's an Eastern religious idea. And a whole bunch of people will throw that away right away. They'll discard it because that's not their concept. They're going to throw it out. 
So to help people look at the ideas freshly and not get caught up in old, you know, in, in old baggage of belief, I tend to use metaphors that uh, I hope are descriptive of the function, but that aren't part of of uh, religious concepts or even uh, uh, non-religious concepts, you know, any, any kind of, of concept before, because the people can look at a, an experience packet kind of freshly. Okay, you have to have multiple experiences in order to grow. It's just an experience packet, it has nothing to do with religion. And uh, so that's, that's what I mean when I talk about these things are metaphors. It's, it's the way it is. If we communicate in language, we have to use symbols. And if our symbols are metaphors. A metaphor is just a little more complex symbol. You know, it's a oh, okay. symbol in terms of other symbols. It's a, it's a little more complex, but it's just a symbol, just the same. So larger consciousness system, IUOC, free will awareness unit, uh, all these things are metaphors. Um, not, they're, they're symbols for things that consciousness can do and structures of how it can actually do it. And then you look at the metaphors and they have to be logical. So I can't just make up an IUOC and say, well, I'm going to make up things of consciousness and that's an IUOC. Well, you can, but now that becomes an assumption. And of course, you don't want a model that has a lot of assumptions. So the IUOC has to have a logical, has to be logically necessary. Well, it's logically necessary because you have to have a system that evolves. One monolithic system limits its evolution. It can't evolve, but so far because it runs out of things that are unique because it's all one thing. You break it into pieces with free will. Now there's a huge amount of possibilities generated. So evolution works. And you look at that's exactly the way our biology worked exactly through that same process. Most everything works through the same process. When you really want to understand something complicated, you, you look at its pieces. So anyhow, so it has to be part of a logical process. And in my process, I started with the simplest concept of consciousness that I could come up with. The simplest, most basic, most primitive consciousness was a thing that could differentiate between state A and state B. And that was it. Had nothing else that it could do except, oh, I'm in state A. Oh, now I'm in state B. And those turned into the ones and zeros, which turns into the digital system that got stuck when it was a monolithic system, which had to break into separate systems of free will, which are the IUOCs. So all everything, starting with that most fundamental, simple consciousness, has to be deductively logical that we can't get to the next step. You know, we, we need a logical process which takes us to the next step, the next step, the next step. And then when you're done, you've got this whole theory from beginning to end. And do you know that it's real and that it works and that it's perfect and true? No, you don't. But it's the best model you can make fit all the data points, you see. And that's as good as any model can get, is that it fits all the data points. And my model had to fit more data points than anybody else's because I had to fit all the physical data points that I know of as a physicist. I also had to fit all the non-physical data points that I that I know of from 40 years of of experience and researching the non-physical. So I've found my non-physical facts, if you will, 
And some of them have a lot of physical manifestations like a placebo effect. Okay, that's a, that's a lot of physical, but it's a non-physical fact that the placebo effect's a real effect. It changes people. Okay? It makes people well because, they, because of their attitude. Mind leads, body follows. That's not a physical thing. Physical thing, body has to start and everything else has to generate from the body. But if it starts from the mind first, then it's a non-physical fact. So I have a hundred of these non-physical facts that my theory had to match, had to explain every one of them. Plus it had to explain every one of the hundred physical facts that I also know. And that's how I compl that's how I uh, created my models. Just a logical model to explain all the facts that I know. But oh. I don't know all the facts necessarily, you know, that can be known. So the model has to also be able to grow and change and, and modify as new facts come on board. That's kind of how it works. That's why we're stuck with metaphors. Um, the model is just a logical model. That's why in my book, I keep telling people, don't confuse the model of reality with reality. Reality is something we really can't ever experience directly. All we can experience is the data information about reality and from there on it's up to us to figure out what that information means means to interpret it so that's that's kind of the and that's a good big picture question because that's kind of an understanding now people tend to turn these metaphors into real things that's okay but don't forget that they're metaphors you can turn them into real things in your discussion but don't forget that metaphors are metaphors because, see, that's what got the scientists in trouble. They did an experiment, and it looked, the experiment took place as if there were particles, as if there were electrons. So they look at the results. They measured something, and they say, well, this something has momentum, and this something has charge. Therefore, momentum means it has mass. Charge, you know, says it's, it's electric charge. So therefore, what I saw was a particle. A little chunk of mass with a charge. Well, that's a model. That chunk of mass with a charge is a model they make up just out of the blue sky. They make that up because it seems to explain, you know, what they measured. Because you can't measure it directly. You can only measure information from it. See, it's the same thing. You can't hold an electron in your hand and, and become it. You can only measure its effects. It has an effects. I measure the effects, but then I make up a model out of the sky that would explain those effects. So now I have an electron and it's got a charge of one unit and it's a little chunk of mass of so much. And I believe in it. I forget that I made it up and it's only a metaphor. Then pretty soon I'm stuck with a, with a double slit experiment and it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you see, it just doesn't work anymore. And I'm terribly confused because I believe in these little things now. So I made up a metaphor, a model, then I forgot that it was a model and a metaphor. I believe that it's a real thing. Yeah. And now I get, I run into problems because it's not really a real thing. No physicist today looks at electron as a chunk of matter with charge. That just can't get the right answer. It's wrong. Electrons are chunks of matter with charge. Electrons don't exist. They're not, you know, they're, they're, you know, they are potential. They have, they have consequences, but they are probability. That's what the double slit told us. 
that there's only a probability of getting a measurement of a certain mass and a certain charge someplace. So that allows us to solve problems. So a physicist will tell you that an electron is a point with the properties of mass and the properties of charge. And if they could measure it from top to bottom, they'd have to say in the property that it takes up space, but nobody can measure that. So we don't say that yet. We just say it has the properties of mass and the properties of charge. Well, that's exactly how you'd describe a computed electron. <laughs> it's a point with the properties of mass and charge. See, that's a piece of information. That's how scientists today have come to the conclusion that our reality is information. Not because they read my book, none of them ever heard of my book. They came to that conclusion because their own experiments told them that that's the way you have to look at reality. If you try to compute what's going to happen based on mass and charge and electron, you can't get the right answer. You can only get the right answer if you let that go and realize it's just a metaphor. So you see, we, we make up metaphors all the time about stuff. But I'm particularly sensitive about not believing that the metaphors are real because we've done that over and over in science and we always end up with pie in our face because the metaphors sometimes aren't real, but they're close. You know, a chunk of mass with charges is a good descriptor for talking about it. You have to talk about it, but it's not really what it is. So the same is with consciousness, larger conscious system, the IUOCs, free will awareness, and it's all these things. Those are labels so we can talk about it, but let's not believe in it. Let's just use the model because it's helpful to us to make sense out of the world. You know, you go out of body or whatever you do and you meet up with beings and these beings are very trustworthy and they give you good information. And so MBT gives you a model to place that in. It all makes sense to the model. Well, that's what models are good for. They, they explain your data, your own personal data. And when you get to the point that it doesn't explain your personal data, you've got data that's contrary to MBT. Well, that's when you let MBT go and say, I've got this other data that MBT doesn't explain. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's when MBT has to grow and explain it or another better model needs to replace it. That's, you know, we don't want to believe in our own metaphors and turn them into physical facts. Just information. That's the yeah. best model we can come up with to describe the information that we've got, which is all the non-physical and all the physical facts. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Yeah. Does that Great. put it in a, in a whole perspective? Yeah, because otherwise people want to believe in it. As, as things, they want to see it as, as things. And that's really not the way it's conceptual. Our reality is information, not stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very, very clear. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay. Yep. Good. Good. Thank you, Mel. Um, the questions we have left, I, you know, speaking to your model, Tom, I think the the review I did on your book 11 years ago, which was hard because it was so amazing to me, was that one of the words I used was that it was a framework for understanding all of the mm -hmm. 
non-physical things I was used to and all of the things I had read. I think it's a wonderful framework of understanding. So we'll get on to the next questions. Now these questions have been uh, submitted and we haven't um, had a chance to read some of these yet. This one is from John from Thailand. Could you please elaborate on what you call the subconscious and what folks might generally know as the subconscious mind? MBT theory describes the subconscious as a complete derivative of having fear and that is very interesting. The word subconscious is often used in such a way as to be mysterious and outside of one's control. Perhaps you could provide some clarity about the MBT definition. Well, I don't know if I provide more clarity than he's already heard, but I will try to make that clear. And yes, the subconscious, sub meaning beneath, conscious. So it's a, it's like a portion of your consciousness that is outside of your intellect. That's the basic meaning of the word sub, the consciousness beneath the consciousness of which you are aware. So I'm going to call the consciousness of which you're aware your intellect, what your intellect's aware of. And then there's another part of you that's just down there. And that's where all the emotion tends to reside. The fears, the beliefs, all that stuff is, is down at this level outside of your intellect. So at least portions of it are down there. So when somebody insults you, you don't have an intellectual response. Oh, I just got insulted. I should be angry. All right, let's be angry now. You know, that would make anger an intellectual thing, but it's not. Somebody insults you and the anger just pours up. You immediately are upset, annoyed, angry, hurt, whatever it is. That's just a feeling. So most of our feelings are in our subconscious or maybe all of our feelings are in our subconscious that's the feeling space okay what mbt says is that once you get rid of your fear you no longer have fear you no longer really have anything to hide you try to hide from your fear in a sense that you try to pretend that the fear isn't there you have all sorts of strategies that help you do that so if you are afraid that you are just a small bit of nothing and not very important or, or adequate or competent, then you have several strategies. You can be a, 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 a shrinking violet and stand in a corner all the time and not talk to anybody, or you can be belligerent and you can be aggressive and you can cover up that feeling of inadequacy by being, by being tough, by uh, you know, pushing people. So there's two opposite ways, but they're there for the same reason, to cover up a fear so that you don't have to see that fear. You don't have to accept it. You don't want to accept what you fear. You don't want to have to deal with it. So we have strategies for covering up, and that's what our ego does. Our ego tells us, so you're not really afraid that you're a little bit of nothing. You just don't have a lot to say. And uh, most all the small talk is just rubbish anyway, just people, you know, flapping their, li their lips and not really saying anything. And, and you're more, you're deeper than that. You don't do all that shallow stuff. So you just sit over here by yourself and maybe somebody will come talk with you. And, or if you're belligerent, then you feel that that's a way that you can get your way. It's a way that, that other people will pay attention to you because you're aggressive. And 
that that works. You don't have to deal with being inadequate. You see, so these are just things that we that we are to cover up our fears. So the fear is something we don't want to deal with. We don't want to see it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to recognize it. We want it to be gone. And we can ignore it. We can deny it. Okay, well, when we do that, it ends up not in our intellect. Otherwise, we'd know about it. We'd think about it. It would be there. And on our minds, we'd be thinking, oh, boy, I'm really inadequate. But we don't. We bury it. We don't think about that. It's just down there. And we feel it. But we even push those feelings down to where we don't, we're not even aware of the feelings. But they're down there. And that's what this subconscious is. It's all of this junk that we don't want to deal with. It just comes out on its own. When you get rid of all the fear, then you, you become authentic, the whole you. You become one whole thing. You don't have pieces of you that are hidden from yourself. There's no need to hide pieces from yourself. You're aware of your intellect and the things that you process, but you're also aware of your sexuality. You're aware of your sensuality. You're aware of, you know, that you're hungry. You're aware of everything. You don't have to have stuff hidden away from you. So you become a whole aware person of all your parts. None of those parts are surprising. And when somebody comes up and is rude to you and insults you, you don't get angry because it takes fear to get angry. You just deal with it in a positive way. You see, there's nothing that bubbles up out of you from the, from the great unseen. You just deal with it in a positive way. So it's the, the subconscious then becomes a piece of us that is really dysfunctional for us and we cover it over. Now, if you are aware and you, and you don't have any fear, do you still have feelings? Of course you have feelings, but the feelings aren't, they don't come up out of some deep basement that shock you or surprise you. You have feelings and those feelings are, you accept them and they are there, they're you, they're, they're a part of you. Okay, this makes me feel happy. This makes me feel sad. You know, this, this makes me feel whatever. And you have those feelings and they're just there, just like anything else is there. They're a part of you. It's not the kind of thing that suddenly you're in a rage or suddenly you just cry and you don't know why. I'm bawling, but I don't know why. If you are aware and don't have fear, if you're crying, you do know why. You know, you don't have this, these surprising things that leap up, surprising anger, likes and dislikes that come from nowhere. You know exactly, you know, where things are and why they're there. You don't have dislikes for the most part. Everything's okay. So that's the idea. And the reason that we have psychological models that have a subconscious is what we talked about earlier. Psychological models are, are basically experimental models. Look at 100,000 people and see what they're like. The ones that are normal, you know, that means you don't see any particular dysfunction in them. Well, then that becomes okay, the way people are supposed to be. Well, just being average or being normal in a statistical sense, that that's the way most people are, doesn't necessarily make you healthy. You know, the average person, has a lot of fear. So it's normal to be full of fear. It's normal to have a subconscious. Yes, it is entirely normal, but that doesn't make it entirely healthy. 
See, there's two different things. Well, when nobody knew anything about psychology, when Freud was kind of inventing the concepts and looking at mind and coming up with a model, he modeled it from what he saw. And it seemed like a good model. It seemed to fit everybody, almost everybody. But he had this thing in his model that was a little uh, kind of a thing that you didn't see a whole lot, but he did see it some in some people, a lot in a few people, and he called that the superego. Okay, so there was this ego, it's all about me, but then sometimes it's not all about me. Sometimes I care about others. Sometimes it's love, not fear. When it's love, well, it's kind of a rare thing, but we'll call it a superego, something you want to give, see? And that then is kind of indifference to the ego. Well, basically what we're saying is we want to take all that ego and turn it into superego. Well, the way you do that is make your world about other, not about you. And the way you do that is become love. And the way you do that is to get rid of all your fear. You see, so all those things kind of work together. If we were all super ego and not ego, and Freud really didn't have it in terms of fear. That wasn't his model. His, you know, my model's a fear on one side, love on the other. So I end up with my model because that's the fundamental way I see people interacting with each other. It has to do with fear or it has to do with love. That's, those are the two poles. Fear had, uh, Freud had a little different model. So he made his superego. He didn't say that's about love or it was about giving. He wouldn't have put it that way. But it, if you take his description, you can see how it fits. You know, the idea that that is the uh, about other. And if you take his description of ego, you see how that fits, that that's about fear. So Freud would tell you that everybody needs a strong sense of self. If you didn't have a strong sense of self, who are you? Well, I would agree with that. But there's a difference here. You see, people, well, let's put it this way. Ego is defined as awareness in the service of fear. Okay, if you want, you can call that self-awareness, but awareness of self and awareness of environment and other in a service of fear. That's what I define as ego. Well, and for the most people, for the 0.999999% of all people, then, or, or not percent, but the 0.999, you know, in a, in a probability of the people, 99.99999%, um, Ego is at their core. Fear is at their core. They're very fearful. So that's what we kind of call that ego and we get it confused because it is, it is awareness in the service of fear. And that pretty much defines ego just as Freud saw it. But there's this superego piece of it that says you can have awareness in the service of love. That's positive. And your awareness in the service of love is not ego. It's self-aware. And yes, indeed, you do have to have a self-identity, a self-awareness, who you are and what you are. And you should have that. Not having ego doesn't mean that you're a, a robot or that you don't have any feelings. It means your feelings are positive. And it means you are aware of yourself and you are aware of other but that's in the service of love and not in the service of fear, you see. So 
a strong, positive identity? Yes, absolutely. But I differentiate that from the strong, positive identity in with fear. So those become two different things, kind of the positive and negative of the of the same sort of thing. So yes, good, strong, positive identity, fine. Identifying with the fear, I shouldn't say identifying with the fear, but in the service of fear, and that's dysfunctional. And that's what you get rid of. And when you get rid of all that dysfunctional part, part of you that's in the service of, of love doesn't have to be covered up. That's not something that you try to escape from and you don't want to admit you have and that you're trying to avoid facing. That's all the good stuff and happy stuff. You face that very readily. So that's why it is when you get rid of your fear, you also get rid of your subconscious and you just become conscious person, a being of love. Different. Doesn't require you to become a cipher or a, or a robot without feelings. You have lots of feelings. Feeling, you know, love is a feeling and it engenders all sorts of feelings. They just tend to be positive feelings. All right, Tom, thank you. Uh, William R. Sub, uh, submitted a question from his wife. He's questioning the concept of feminism. He's thinking all of these isms are the things that are, are troubling. Um, in our society. How do you change at the being level if you're bombarded with ads that sell this sexualized image of women since birth? How do you change this unfair system as an individual and not as part of an ism tribe when you have to live in this system every day? How do you break free when you're born and educated under a system that promotes these values and you are hardly consciously aware of them? Yes. Well, you know, that's part of your growing up, right? You have a culture. That culture has a lot of beliefs and a lot of fears that it just you pick up just from being in that culture. It's part of your collective consciousness with the other people in your culture. So we have to outgrow that. Yes, it's like that, but we have to outgrow. And how do you change the system? Well, you change it by changing yourself. You have to change yourself. You can't change anybody else. Now, if you'd like to help other people change as well, because you think your change is a good one, well then try to educate. But you don't educate mostly by giving lectures. You educate through good example. You educate by uh, helping people see a bigger picture, not by telling people that they're wrong and they need to think some other way. That just makes them go back, recede further into whatever it is they were doing before. So that's how, I mean, it's just, that's just life, right? We have lots of isms of all sorts. You know, fem, feminism is just one, one half of sexism. Right? If it's all about females, then that's, you know, that's, uh, and, and, and men aren't around or men are, are out of the picture or whatever. It's only about females. Well, then we say that that's, that uh, is just female exclusive. Well, you could call that sexism or just male exclusive, and that's sexism. Whether it's, I don't know what, I don't know what the male version of feminism would be. Would it be uh, femme, female, male? Would it be maleism, malinism? I don't know. Never heard of that one. But uh, whatever it is, both of them would be wrapped up in in belief. You know, anytime you get something that is 
this is what I believe. You know, it is like this. Belief is not a good thing. Belief limits you. And yes, we come into cultures with lots of beliefs and they limit us. They limit us terribly. So we need to break free. How do you break free? Well, you got to grow up, get rid of your fears. Most of those beliefs come from fears. So that's the thing. And now a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that, that you have to run up against may be frightening in a way, but there's a difference between being aware of hardship and becoming fearful. There's a difference between seeing problems and becoming a victim. See, these are very different things. So if you're in a, if you're in a very difficult situation, you have two routes to take, and one is deal with it. Deal with that situation. Deal with it the best you can. If it requires you to, to grow up, grow up. Be a good example. Um, you know, try to educate. But if your other choice is, instead of dealing with it, is to be a victim. Well, being a victim is you waddling around in your own self-pity. That's what being a victim is. It doesn't mean you aren't a victim. You might be a victim of that thing. Say, let's say you're a victim of racism or a victim of sexism. Well, it may be that you, that, that, that uh, affects you. Well, everything affects you. You're a victim of everything. You're a victim of bad weather. You know, you can be a victim of, uh, of uh, you know, a bad economy. You can be a victim of a, of a bank that goes belly up. You can be a victim of everything. Victim just means it affects you negatively. Well, men and women, boys and girls, our world is like that. It's full of thousands of things that affect us negatively. We're here to deal with it, to interact with it, to grow within it. I mean, there's lots of stuff that affects us. You know, maybe you're a suffering, you're a victim of newsism because the news is so violent and negative and uh, that makes you violent and negative. So you can be a victim of newsism or a victim of of complainers or a victim of whiners or a victim of, you know, whatever. Maybe you have, um, you know, a lot of sunburn and you're a victim of the sun. You know, well, you gotta stop being a victim and deal with it. How can you deal with that? Well, put a shirt on, you know, and don't go outside, you know, when the sun's too bright, deal with it. Find some, you know, 45 or 50, uh, you know, cream that, uh, Keeps you from getting sunburned. Don't be a victim. But that's the way it is with all of these things. So yes, okay, you may be, uh, let's say, you may be on the, on the bad end of racism. And because of the, your culture is racist, you end up in a, in a very bad place. You're hard to get a job, hard to break out of poverty. A lot of things are stacked against you. All right, but you still have a choice. You see, it's not about... It's, it, it's, it's not about the, you know, the, the, what, the amount of money you make or how big your house is. It's about the choices you make. You still have choices. You can still interact. You can still love and care. You can still do all those things. Okay, within, a, within a, the confines, maybe, of a racist culture. But you can still do things that are good choices. You can love, you can grow, you can become. And it's even more challenging if you're in a tough situation, like I said before, with relationship, than if you're in a, an easy situation. You even have a bigger 
you know, steps that you can take. But as soon as you say, I'm a victim, you're saying, I'm helpless. I can't help it. It's not my fault. The system's against me. And if that's your idea, you're stuck. You see, how can you get out of that if that's what you feel? If that's what you believe, you're stuck. You're dead-ended. You're miserable and you're going to stay that way. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's not true. That's self-pity. Yes, it may be an awful situation that you're in, but you have choices. Within that awful situation, you can still care. You can still love. You can still function. You can still grow up, you see. Well, if you get in the, if you become a victim and get wallowing around in self-pity, you can't grow up. You're just stuck. So let's say you're one, you're a victim of a, of a, of a food shortage and you and your family are all starving to death. Well, you can be a victim and I'll just wallow around in self-pity about there isn't anything to eat. And that may be true. And maybe you are a victim of greedy people who stole all the food. That may be a fact, but you still have choices. You and your family still love each other, still care. And if you find a little morsel to eat, you'll share it with each other. You see, those are good choices. And at the end of your short life, because you starved to death, you will have leveled up because you made good choices in a very hard situation. And that's what it's all about, is making good choices. And when you're making good choices in a very tough situation, you level up even faster because that's harder to do. It takes more effort, more focus to make good choices in a terrible situation. You see, that's the thing. There's always ways to grow up no matter what your situation is. But when you give up, basically give up responsibility for your choices, say, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not at fault. It's not me. The system's got me down and there's nothing I can do about it. You're dead in the water. There's nothing you can do about it because you believe that. But if you say, okay, it's a nasty system and I'm at the bottom of it, but I still have people I like and people who like me. You know, I still have things that are good. I still can get by. If I find a morsel, I'll share it with my family. If I'm not, well, we're all going to die. That's the way that it is here. But make good decisions. Because there's always bad decisions you make. You can say, oh, look, there's somebody else that found some food. I'll just hit them in the head with this stick and take their food. Well, that's a poor decision. Now you've decided that uh, because you're not at fault and uh, you're just a victim, that you can just make somebody else a victim. You can take their stuff. Bad decision. And then when you die of starvation and you've been knocking people in the head with a stick to get the little bit of food that didn't keep you alive, you de-evolve. See? So no matter where you're in, no matter how much that's stacked against you with some ism or another, the victim card is a disaster. You need to deal within it. All right, we're within, we live in a society that's greedy. We live in a society that's out to take advantage of us any way it can. We live in a society where the politicians tell us lies and what they think we wanna hear. We're in a society where all the marketers are trying to trick us into buying their products for however reason. You know, we're in a society where the phone rings 20 times every day by people trying to sell you things and you can't turn it off. That's just where we live. We're in a society full of people fighting with each other and wars and 
and hunger and this sort of thing. That's where we live. Okay, now deal with it. Find ways to be positive. Make positive choices, even if it's just inside your own home. Live with it. Be happy. Get rid of the fear. Do the best you can. That's what growing up is about. If it means that you never have enough to eat or you never have a big house or you never own your own car, well, that's okay. That's not what makes you evolve. What makes you evolve is the quality of your choices, not the stuff that you've got. You see? And no matter where you are, you have choices. There's always choices. You can always be nice to somebody else. You can always say something pleasant. You've got nothing else to do. You can do that. So that's the thing about isms. It's uh, it's a trap. It's a belief trap that will suck out all of your energy, take away your free will, and you're, you're left as a victim of an ism. And yes, they are all over our culture, all over our world, all over almost every culture. There isn't any place where all the people have everything that they could dream of wanting. Everybody struggles with hardships. You get put in jail because you did something bad. Okay, you can't get out and take a walk in the park. You can't go home for Christmas. You know, you can't see your girlfriend because you're in jail and she's not. And you just have to live with that. But you still have choices. Those choices will help you evolve or de-evolve. Even in that environment. That's the thing about isms. Don't let them get you down. Even if you can't, you feel that you're on the bottom of the pile and not getting, you know, what you deserve. Well, what you deserve really is an opportunity to make good choices. That's the only thing that you really deserve. And everybody's got that. Make the best choices you can make and deal with what can't affect. Deal with what you can't change. In that, choose well. Thank you, Tom. I think we do need to bring an awareness um, to the things in our culture that are sold to us as normal and ideal, and uh, we just are bombarded with it, as he said, and we uh, take that in. I think we use, need a little discernment in uh, in some of those things that are thrown at us which is hard to do. Well, the cry is that it's unfair. You know, it's not fair. Well, life is not fair. You You don't come here with a guarantee that things will be fair. You come here with a guarantee that you will have choices to make. And by those choices, you will evolve or de evolve. That's your guarantee. Nobody said it would be fair. And we all get to be in most all of the situations. So everybody has experiences being born and living a life as male, as female, as rich, as poor, you know, as hungry or well-fed. We get all those situations. It's not like it's not fair because this is your turn, you know, to have a tough whatever because you maybe need a tough whatever or maybe it was just luck that you got a tough whatever. But it's not fair because... not a not a valid thing for you to fuss about. Now, things are unfair and you may want to change them. I'm not saying that that you know that everything's fair. I'm saying that's beside the point. You need to live your life and make choices anyway, even if it is unfair. 
But if you want to change things, then the only way to change things is to grow yourself up first and then help other people grow themselves up. And you can't do that by preaching. You can't do that by violence. You can't do that by force. Otherwise, you become part of the problem.